Hi, everyone, and welcome to Frankly, the energy podcast for founders. I'm your host, John Mishriki, where I'll be dealing it straight to you from entrepreneurs who have scaled and failed, investors who are passionate and have seen it all, and leading tech voices that are looking to build moonshots to change the way we live. All right, everyone. So I wanted to welcome today a very special guest, Mark, all the way from Boston. Mark, welcome to Frankly. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. Mark, why don't you give us a bit, uh, a bit of background about what you've been doing for the last you know, 10 years and what <laughs> led you all the way to uh, Stage 2 Capital, founding Stage 2 Capital? By background, I am a passionate entrepreneur since the age of 22. <clears throat> the last one I did, um, I started in 06, was, was HubSpot as part of the founding team there. Uh, there was like four of us that met at MIT during business school and, and built this SaaS business. I was the head of sales. I did that for 10 years, um, had the luxury of building one of the first like cloud first, inside sales first sales teams to do a lot of innovation and started to be asked to speak about that and eventually was asked to write a book about it, which turned out great and, and was a bestseller. And I think like, you know, I, I've gotten a lot of great notes from entrepreneurs and most importantly, the proceeds are donated to like a fantastic nonprofit, hundred percent of the proceeds that help kids that are in tough neighborhoods. So, uh, so that's been fun. And then that led to a, a, a recruitment of a post at Harvard Business School to teach sales at the MBA level. Um, which again, what, a, what an opportunity to share this experience that I was given. And then that led to just a, a bunch of work in the last five years of like parachuting into a different company every quarter for a day or two a week to study the science of scale that we're going to talk about today. Like this, trying to demystify this, like what are the capabilities that a seed or series A funded startup put in place early that, that influence unicorn outcomes versus what's missing that causes flatlining. And, and the same is true, you know, John, for, for larger companies that are launching new products, like the same, it's kind of the same underlying thesis. So that's what I've really been working on the last five years. And, and that has, uh, has transitioned into a, a venture capital firm called Stage 2 Capital um, that a young investor at Bessemer had the idea for, and he left and we teamed up and basically the first venture capital firm running back by sales and marketing leaders. Uh, so we had a, we had a nice successful fund one and are in the process of fund two and, um, have been investing, um, through this, um, through this thesis. Um, and, uh, you know, so far the, the markup rates and velocity have, have shown that it, it's, it's going well so far. So happy, I'm excited to share it with you all. Fast forwarding seven years at HubSpot, you moved to, you know, become the SVP of world sales out there and then to become a chief revenue officer. But throughout all of that, the numbers that really struck me was revenue growth of 6,000%, moving it from one to 450. These are remarkable numbers to, you know, to, <laughs> for someone that was just ended, the, ended there by luck. So, I mean, what I'd like to really share with our audience is, what were some of the fatal mistakes that you would like others scaling to, to avoid that you experienced in that journey with HubSpot? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we were crawling out of a time in entrepreneurship where it was very common. We called selling vaporware, right? Like in the eighties and nineties. And, you know, I, my first startup was in the late nineties. Right. And that this is how it worked. Like, 
you had this concept, the engineers scrambled to build something. We didn't have lean startup. We didn't have the work of Steve Blank and Eric Reese. We didn't, there was no MVP, that term didn't exist, right? So you just went out and you like, a bunch of engineers were sitting in a room and try to build something as quickly as possible. And a small sales team would sell it before it was built. And this kind of comes out of like the on-premise non-SaaS software world. Um, and that's how we did it. We understand today not to do that. We, like, thanks to the work of Eric Reese and the concepts of agile software development and MVPs and that kind of stuff, we as the entrepreneur community have grown so much to, like, to establish a hypothesis, put it out there, build products side by side with customers, get constant daily customer feedback, iterate, test, pivot, boom, 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 until we find product market fit. And so we didn't, we didn't really, I mean, I guess we did that a little bit. Um, we just probably sold more aggressively before we had what we considered product market fit. And I remember like, it was a little bit of a, I don't even remember, I don't know if Darmesh and Brian would remember this moment, but I do remember this moment where we, I think we had like 20, 25 customers and finally had honed in on what this thing needs to be. And, and Darmesh was like, great, let's stop selling for three months and build it. And Halligan was like, no way, we're gonna triple the sales team. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like build it while we do it. Here's my summary as I've looked across like many of these startups is trying to bring science to the two critical questions, which is when should you scale and how fast? You know, when, when I ask my students or the entrepreneurs, like when do you scale? I do get a very consistent answer which is when you have product market fit. Okay, and, and again, we have, thanks to Eric Reese and Steve Blank, we have dramatically improved our execution ability from, from ideation to, to this product market fit thing. However, when you ask 10 entrepreneurs, what is product market fit, you get 10 different answers. A lot of people say when you have like sales and revenue. That really concerns me. So it's three sequential stages um, that I wouldn't recommend going to the next one until you've checked off the first one. And I recommend like really um, uh, optimizing the entire go-to-market, even the entire business around accomplishing the milestone of that phase. The first one is product market fit, and that's defined by customer retention and the leading indicators of customer retention. And so we're gonna dive into how to, like, how to define that and, and quantify and measure, et cetera. Once you have that, you've essentially proven in a little more of a verbose, verbose description that when you sign up customers, you're going to um, create customer value for most of them consistently. That's what you've proven, product market fit. Once you have that, then you wanna focus on go to market fit. And that's basically showing that you can continue to create customer value for most of the customers you sign up in a profitable, scalable way. Right, so during product market fit, don't worry about profitability. Just like, you know, Paul Graham says, do unscalable things early. That's your moment. Like some of the best entrepreneurs during the product market fit stage, I see are like literally flying out to onboard $50 a month customers. Like that's the work we're doing. It's so hard to come up with an idea and to be able to deliver on that promise with like 80% of your customers. So just do everything possible to make that happen. And if you do, that's such a wonderful foundation to build a business on top of. During go-to-market fit, now we have to do that profitably. Now we have to do that scalably. And usually in the world of like SaaS, we talk about unit economics, right? Like 
LTV to CAC greater than three, payback period less than 12 months, the magic number greater than one. Like you can Google these and there's a lot of literature on these concepts, right? Again, the problem is these are lagging indicators. We sign up customers in Q2, we have no idea what the unit economics on that effort is until like things play out. We do a bunch of sales calls right now. We don't know what the unit economics of those efforts are until many months down the road when this whole thing plays out. So we have to seek out leading indicators to unit economics. And that's gonna instruct us as whether they have go-to-market fit. Once we have the two of those, we've essentially assembled one single chart that shows the lead indicators to customer attention and one single chart that shows lead indicators of unit economics. And we move into the final stage, with this, which is growth and moat. And we use these two charts as a speedometer to know if we're going too fast or too slow. So remember at the beginning, I said two questions, when to scale and how fast. So these two instrumented dashboards, which are literally can fit on one slide each, becomes your speedometer to measure whether you're going too fast or too slow. And so when we move into growth and moat, unfortunately, most entrepreneurs make what I find is a fatal mistake at this point. They, they, they sense the momentum of their business. They're able to attract an, a, a next round of funding. In these days, Series A, they can be like 8 million bucks. It's real money. <clears throat> and then they go from a team of two salespeople to like 20 <laughs> in one month. They're just like, we got the money. We, we told the venture capitalists, this, we show them this hockey stick plan. We got to do it. We got to hire 15 salespeople next month and show them that we're serious. And that is just fit, causing a lot of failure in startups. Because John, you know, like from being there, like, like when, you, when you peel back what it takes to hire 15 reps in a month, and you think about how many, how many sourced candidates that is, how many phone screens, how many interviews, how many offer letters, just on the recruiting side. And then you think about what it takes to onboard those people. Like who's gonna manage them? Where's the demand come from to feed them for opportunities? It causes tremendous failure. And so when we move into growth and moat, we don't think about hiring 15 reps in a month. We think about establishing a pace of let's say one rep a month for four months and we watch the speedometer. And if the speedometer stays green, we go to two reps a month for four months and then four and then eight. And if it goes red, we know six months before the PL is produced that we have a problem. And we have a sense of where the problem is so we can diagnose, intervene, and hopefully get it back on track. So that's it. Product market fit, go to market fit, growth and mode. Great. I, lo I love the, the, um the structured thought and, and the metrics too, because as you indicated, I think one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of founders put into play is premature scaling or scaling exactly. too early and then fall flat on their face because they just don't have the, the bandwidth to take all of that, whether the organization or as, or as individuals. And in, in the context of what we're doing, we're really passionate about helping, um, startups in the energy space in what we call new yes. energy and making an impact on climate, making a positive impact on climate. And in that industry, penetrating it is a lot harder. There are longer sales cycles uh, and they're usually not early adopters or you're very early on because, you know, climate change and the impact and so on for your users to adopt you. So what I'd like to take 
a deep dive on today is creating that product market fit for sure. B2B startups in what I call uh, harder to penetrate industries uh, like like energy and, sure. and, and the common characteristics in that. I've done a lot of my research in the software industry and John, you and I can then jam about like what that would be in the, in the energy entrepreneurial context. We may have to think about an example product just to like really give it some substance. But um, the, the structure that I have found, it's a bit formulaic, is if you, if you can, if P percent of your customers achieve E events in T time, okay? So let's bring that to life for a second, like Slack, okay? If, if 70% of their customers send 2,000 team messages in 30 days, okay? That's like very, their communication mechanism, like a collaboration platform, team messages feels like a really obvious event to be basing it on. So 70% of customers send 2,000 team messages in 30 days. Like that, if they have that, they have product market fit. That's, in my opinion, that's so much better than like they have a workable product or people are buying or whatever, okay? Dropbox, 85% of customers share one file through one device in one hour. Okay, much more transactional. Um, that's doable, all right? HubSpot, and this is exactly what it was. After, and again, we made the mistake of, we didn't know this stuff when we were like a six person team seeking product market fit. We went after this three years later when we were about a 150 person company with a churn problem. <laughs> and, and, you know, roughly like, Thousand, I've met have been five to 10,000 customers. So a lot of data to study. And so we were able to not just guess what would correlate. We actually were able to run the regression analyses to see what actually had the strongest R square of a correlation to retention. And it turned out that it was the number of features they used on our platform. I think we had 20 features at the time. If they used five or more, they were good. So ours was if 80% if, if of customers use five or more features, within 60 days. Okay, so that's the structure. Now, how do we bring that into the energy world? Well, well John, can you, can you give me an example company so we could just work on that and riff on yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, it, to, to be very honest with you, a lot of the companies that we're, we're looking at, well, the impact that we're trying to change into the energy and the climate space is not just hardware startups. A lot of them are actually software startups. Some of them are B2B. Some of them okay, are, cool. are, B, are B2C. So a lot of what you're saying is, is very relevant. And if I hear you correctly, Mark, you talk about, a percentage of your customers that transact certain transactions on your platform that create stickiness, that create retention. Now, the real question is, how do you define what are these indicators? Yeah, exactly. That so that's why we've retention? we've we've extracted this back to three variables, right? Which is you're saying p percent. So what's the p? E event. What is the e in t time? So what's the what's the t? Okay. And, and let's just rip on it for a sec. Do you have like a company that you've talked about in energy? It could be, in the, it's easier if it's in the software space for us to, so just so we can play with this. Yeah, I mean, uh, I actually have, we have an interesting company that is actually in, in the midst of a product market fit. They're called nice, perfect. Uh, Five, and they're actually a B2C. And their, their uh, objective is around creating a carbon neutral world, world or carbon offsetting. And they're sure. currently literally on, um, product hunt trying to create a product nice. market and nice. going through, growing through that journey so cool. they're okay all, so what all, is there so they're carbon neutral um so what do i do what's the use case if i'm going to go download this thing what does it do 
So basically you uh, say, I'm going from uh, point A to point B. This is the, mo the, the travel mode that I'm traveling in and how much impact uh, am I having from a carbon perspective? And then it tells you the impact and how can you offset that through investing okay. into different projects and so on. Okay, perfect. So yeah, I mean, let's work on the definitions here. Okay, so as we, let's start with the E. The E event is critical. That's the most important one, okay? And so we want this thing to be like really quantifiable, you know, and, and a bit binary, a yes or no situation. We want it to be instrumentable, you know. So, so one example is just setup is, is one. I'm not sure that's good here. I think that's a little more common in, in like, um, you know, more larger enterprise plays. Consumer usage, so DAU, WAU, frequency of usage. Um, and then we could also, or we could do more of like a, a depth of usage and basically say like what percent got to not only the tracking, but you're saying there's an action to it as well. So if they could track that, that might be retention. Now, so that's the E, okay? The P, um, the percentage, how many percent? Like I usually see this number between 60 and 80%. I don't know what the right answer is. I do know like it's not that important like to get it precisely right. It's just because what you're going to see is we're going to instrument this thing and, and hopefully it doesn't like, let's say we call it like 70%. Okay. We're going to see that number approach 70%. I think we just call it product market fit. And hopefully as we continue, it goes past 70%. It goes, it's not like if we say it's 70%, it just doesn't stay there. You know what I mean? It's like, it's probably going to go up. So I would just say 70%. Okay. So, and then the T time, like, you know, Dropbox was an hour. Dropbox is a very transactional, like the time to value for Dropbox is like super quick. A company like Workday in their enterprise division selling to fortune 500 companies like HR software. I mean, it's going to take them six months just to like set it up and train the team. You know what I mean? So unfortunately theirs takes a long time. It's just the reality of complex enterprise software. But in this case, consumer, it's quick. I mean, I would say two weeks, a month, you know, so it's something like 70% of customers become weekly active users within two weeks, something like that. Who should be our first target customer? Should this be oh, a yeah. large customer that builds a powerful reference yeah. or should we go mm -hmm. to all customers that we learn from rapidly? What, what's your experience? In <laughs> yes, yes. No, you've, you've phrased that. It's a beautiful debate. It's like, literally, we teach a, you know, a session on this in the entrepreneur class for Harvard Business School because it's just a wonderful managerial debate. And that's exactly the, the two options is, do you go for you know, ExxonMobil, you know what I mean? And just go for the big brand and, and knowing that if you get that, just like make every, do everything to make them successful. And if you do, everyone else is going to follow because it's a highly referenceable brand. If it was good enough for ExxonMobil, it was good enough for us. And it will put pressure on the competition that, hey, these, these folks are getting a jump on us and innovation and we need to follow suit. Um, now, of course, the downside is the amount of red tape to get a deal done. I mean, even if you're, like Microsoft, <laughs> a well-established brand with a new product and a, a robust team, you're probably looking at 12 to 18 months just to get that deal done. And, and the cost behind that, I mean, 
at least hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars of, of acquisition costs to do that. That's putting a lot of eggs in one or two baskets, right? And it's really, not, you know, really hard to learn fast in that situation, right? Now, the other option, the other argument is on the other side, right? Like carve out the lowest part of your addressable market where your value still makes sense and try to go there. So the downside is, you know, no one's have heard of these companies probably. So it doesn't make as much referenceability. But the upside is the, you know, these sales cycles are much uh, faster. The red tape to get these deals done in terms of procurement and security and IT and, um, you know, legal is much lower. And so your pace of learning is so much faster. So I'm a huge advocate of the latter. Okay, I'm trying to think if like, if there's a scenario where I'd promote the former. I can't, I really can't. Um, I've seen it work, the former. Uh, the company that stands out for me is Mark 43. It's actually the case that we teach. Wonderful entrepreneur out of Harvard who built software for police departments. And the first customer was Washington, D.C. <laughs> All right. <laughs> like, <laughs> now, fortunately, he had a new police chief. She was an amazing person that was a very innovative, like wanted to shake things up. So underneath the hood, even though we're talking Washington, D.C., I mean, one of the biggest police forces in the country and, and even some of the world, um, she had an early adopter mindset, but I personally, if I was on that advisor board, I would have recommended not doing that. And actually the second one they had a chance at was LA and they passed on it because they didn't, LA didn't have that same mindset at the time. So, so that, that's my take, John is, um, I would, on terms of first customer selection, I like the latter approach. Think about the broad definition segments of the market where you can create value and choose the smallest segment where you will be able to have, it's easier to get conversations, it's easier to get opportunities, it's easier to generate customers, it's easier to get things set up and you will learn fast. Superb. Mark, it's been a pleasure having you on Frankly today and, and I really hope that we get to dig in more into the uh, next two stages of the science of scaling. For sure, John. Thank you for having me. Great. Have a great day, Mark. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you.